Hey guys, welcome to the Truth About Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Ma, and today we're going to talk to, about financial expertise and talk to John Stoge from Verbatim. Welcome, John. Thanks for coming to the show. Yeah, thank you, Matthew, uh, for having me on. It's, uh, you know, I, I know you're in San Francisco, and it makes me feel nostalgic for, uh, for the time I used to spend there. Uh, one of my favorite cities. Nice. I saw too when I was just taking a look. Um, you know, you actually came from a Wall Street background and even uh, you know, created a sushi restaurant. But how did you actually jump into financial planning and then like why does that matter? Well, that's I mean, that's a great question. And and it's very meaningful um to me. Uh because I spent the first half, two thirds of my career uh, on Wall Street, working um, on what they call the institutional side. So I worked for in investment banks, I did investment banking, um, I created securities, and then eventually I managed large portfolios of securities um, for institutions such as uh, ING and SunTrust. And then uh, we eventually had our own uh, investment manager as well uh, for a little while. Um, that was before the financial crisis. Uh, about 10 years ago, that hit. Uh, and and I just got kind of disappointed and tired of, of the business because, you know, I saw the the sort of the underbelly of, of that side of the business and I wanted to do something different. That's how I got into into the sushi business, <laughs> which was <laughs> I wanted to do a 180. So I, I created completely a different. Yeah, it was it, it was completely different, but it was a fantastic experience. Again, I did that for about five years and I sold the company. Um, when our son was born and uh, did a little bit of a stay-at-home dad for, for a while. Um, and then I was drawn, I kept getting drawn back to finance and, and my friends who, were, who stayed in, in the investment and financial uh, services community, they kept telling me I should manage money for people and, and that would be great. Uh, but I, I just didn't want to do it because I didn't think that I knew how to manage money any better than the market uh, for folks. And frankly, I was also a little familiar just from financial advisors, you know, cold calling me um, to just basically sell, uh, either sell products or again, sell their ability that they were somehow magically going to make me money. And at the same time, take a percentage of my investments every single year uh, for that, uh, for that service. And, and so I wasn't too excited about doing it, but um, basically what happened was a friend of mine, he just pushed and pushed and pushed and he convinced me, um, to, to, to join him. And, and he was doing a, uh, he was, he, he had established a flat fee, uh, registered investment advisor and RIA, um, and RIAs are supposed to be fiduciary. You, you have to act in your client's best interest. And he took it a step further because of RIAs can charge uh, their clients based on a, a percentage of their assets or the assets under management model. Um, but he took it a step further and said, I'm only going to charge a flat fee. So my clients know exactly what they're paying. They know exactly what they're getting. Um, the fee doesn't go up just because the market goes up. Uh, and I'm not going to try to convince them that I'm going to outperform the market. So that's a really kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but that's what drew me back into finance after after being out of it for a while. That's a great topic, actually, talking about RAs, talking about percent versus fixed fees, and then even your transition to like when I think back about you know that during the dot com and during the crash, Wall Street financial planning, like you know I see from just from. I was younger back then too, but just seeing that too, I saw some financial advisors, you know, they were pushing products. And even when you're looking at it, like, I don't know if that's actually in the best interest of, of, of the people, the investors, or is it best interest for themselves since they're actually building on that percentage, right? Mm -hmm. And they say they outperform the market, but really how in detail are they really doing? Are they experts at the market? And do they actually know the companies really well at one category or they're just you know, generalizing, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the statistics are very clear. Um, yeah, S and P puts out a an active versus passive uh, um, comparison, uh, performance comparison. Active investing, meaning the folks who go out there and try to pick stocks or bonds or whatever to out again outperform the market, uh, versus passive investing, which is basically getting into the market using index funds and building. You still have to do these things. Um, you can't just willy nilly throw together a bunch of index funds and hope that's you know going to work out. You you know you have to take some time to do it. But you also know that the the that you your job as an advisor is to create a situation where your client 
captures as much of the return uh, that the market can give them um, while paying as little as possible, frankly, in fees. And so, so there's there's definitely two ways to look at it. And and of course, you know, in addition to that, there's as you mentioned the product sales, um, and that's getting popular again because people are nervous about the stock market. Um, and the more nervous people get, the more um, vulnerable they are to sales pitches about. Um, products that are going to magically protect you from a downturn uh, and things like that. And, and, and all of these products are usually insurance-based and insurance-based products come with commissions and they're high fee, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very seldom appropriate for uh, most investors. So for even back then, and I was talking to another uh, financial planning and even uh, insurance agents who are selling whole life policies. And then some of them say, yeah, you know, for example, those policies are great. It does a lot of things you can do. I think a little stretching, a little over promising. And they even talked about like mutual funds and diversification and even um, using their systems to, you know, readjust, always be readjusting to the market so that they're trying to outperform the market. Is that really true? Um, <laughs> um, well, if you ask them, obviously the answer is yes. Um, let's just put it this way. Um, there's a reason why so many massive buildings and cities are owned by insurance companies and they have massive portfolios. And I managed three and a half billion dollars for ING at one point, uh, and they have all this money. That's because they don't lose money. Um, they're making the money from you. Uh, that's just the way it works. Um, they, they know what they're doing. They're not, they're not, they are really smart folks. Yeah. And so the, the fees that are baked into those uh, products are, um, you know, really, really high in general. Um, do they do, you know, some of the things that they say they can do? Yes. Um, but the answer is also, or the other question I should say that people should ask is, are there more efficient and cheaper ways to do basically the same thing and even potentially outperform or do better because usually the market ends up doing better than those products. Yeah. And I like, I like that kind of um, thought process because for example, when I see people talk about it and I'm just listening as you know, as in my own self as an investor, I'm like, I think, you know, some people are selling products. Some people are actually providing really good knowledge and trust. And I like the part of people providing the knowledge and trust because they're saying, hey, here's different options you can choose. You really want to diversify your portfolio. You want to have different things like whole life insurance policies. You want to have real estate. You want to have stocks and everything. Not pushing one product as their own saying, hey, this is the best. It's always the best. I just believe in it and bleed it, you know? Mm -hmm. And like when you look at the numbers, just financially looking at numbers, like, this is not performing as well as you think it is. And you compare this and you're not telling me that, hey, real estate can actually perform better. You get all these benefits, taxation benefits and um, you know residuals, right? While a policy might say, I'll give you dividends, but then here's all these different assumptions. They should actually provide the worst case scenario. Hey, like for example, whole life insurance policy. Immediately, if something happened to you and you already signed, then you get that death benefit. But if it didn't, the normal practice of just, you know, um, creating dividends and value might be just average. And if you take that into fact with everything else, it might not be performing the best, but I'm selling this to you as a benefit, a death benefit, not as a performance product. Yeah. Um, and and so so those whole life, universal life, cash value policies, mm -hmm. often they'll be sold um, in conjunction with some sort of uh, um, bank on yourself or infinite banking concept and all of these ideas. Um, well, um, none of them really work the way that they're uh, that they're purported to work. Um, you know, can you pull the levers and make those things happen? Yes, but again, uh, 99% of the time, cheaper to do in another way. Um, and you know, the the reason that you know these things don't quite work the way the salesmen like to think they will um, or like to present that they will is because. The vast majority of, of cash value life policies never pay out their benefit because people will pay into them for a certain amount of time. Either they'll just, they'll they'll figure out that they can't afford it any longer because these are pretty onerous uh, payments usually annual um, you know uh, policy payments, um, or they learn after being in in it for five even ten years that this doesn't really make any sense. And they have no choice but to to give up, take out what cash value is in there, which is theirs, but again, is going to be in almost all cases, that cash value within a policy is going to be much less 
than what they would have had in a, a brokerage account had they simply taken that policy premium and placed it into, say, a, a total market index fund or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I was looking at it too. I saw like one one policy is like it takes about twelve to fifteen years to break even. I'm like, for that long time period, you could have invested in anything else and it would be better, except for the death benefit. And I hope no one dies. So that's why I was like, okay, it's just a different avenue, but you know, it's good for diversification. But yeah, if they tell you upfront, hey, this won't break even for twelve to fifteen years, but in case it happens, then you get this benefit. Otherwise, there's other performance uh, metrics out there that do better. Yeah, and there are and listen, life insurance policies are are a real part of the financial planning process. Um, I'll I'll say that not everyone needs a life insurance policy. You can get to a point in your life where either you have no dependents, um, your children, if you had if you had children, they're they are independent themselves now. Uh, you know, you you may have no reason to have a, a life insurance policy, and hopefully, we all get to the point where somewhere in our lives we can cancel or let the term. Uh, policies that we've had uh, just simply lapse. And and so there's nothing wrong with life insurance. In fact, like I said, it's a tool yeah. in the financial planning process. But um, life insurance, in my opinion, uh, is something that you should buy if you need it and buy it as cheaply as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. And as a performance factor, you know, people look at S&P 500 as just a general average. And that's the, the baseline, right? Everything else has to be comparable to that and do better. And even when you start taking into real estate for account, you know, real estate, you can have the real estate, you can have the you know residual income, you can have taxation benefits if you do write off depreciation, and then factoring all the performance numbers, all the risk factors, comparing that against S&P, comparing against Bitcoin or whatever, you know, and mm -hmm. seeing how it does. But yeah, diversification about that how do you go about like really you know start to work with a individual uh, family or whatever and then start financial planning with them and how do they learn about all these different products how do you learn about all these different ones and like are you specializing in certain areas sure uh i am i'm not a specialist in any certain area um i in and again in prior part of my career when i was working on wall street i was an asset-backed securities specialist, and I was one of probably, not tooting my own horn here too much, but I was probably one of maybe 100 people in the country that had the level of expertise that I, on that particular topic uh, where I was investing. Um, but working with, uh, working with you know, folks on their personal investment side, um, my job is, to, is actually to be a generalist. It's to know as much as I can about all the options that are out there for people, and then know where to point them if they need to drill down, or frankly, for me to learn about it. Um, I've had clients that that have interest have had interesting uh, situations. Uh, maybe they're they're expats. Uh, they have overseas uh, income. Um, up until two years ago, I didn't know how to treat overseas income. Uh, taxation issues and things like that. Now I do. Um, and in fact, that, that's something that I love about my job is that every time I meet a new person and get a new client, um, I have the chance to dig in because what I'm going to tell somebody, if they ask me a question, they say, I've got this situation and they'll spell it out for me. If I don't know what the answer is, I'm going to tell them exactly that. I don't know. But what they will know if they work with me is that I'm going to find the answer out for them. And if I can't find it, I'm going to find an expert who can work with them, uh, you know, and so that we could all uh, get to the sort of the optimal uh, point in wherever they want to go. Nice. And do all financial advisors have like a fiduciary duty to their investors? Um, not all of them do. Uh, that's a sad, a sad fact. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them do but can sort of turn it on and off like a switch. You could be dual registered. You could be a financial advisor working for a broker dealer. And when you are, when you put on one hat, your fiduciary hat, you're supposed to be working with that client only in the client's best interest. But then you are also allowed to take that hat off and potentially sell them products that that broker dealer would like to sell. Um, that makes things a little difficult for clients and fr frankly to to know you know why is my advisor recommending x y or z um to me uh and and 
that frankly is why I structured my RIA the way I did as a flat fee advisor. I'm an advice only advisor. There are, there, there, there's a small group of us out there that it's growing, thank God. Um, but flat fee or hourly um, or project-based advisors, uh, the idea is, again, that clients know exactly what they're paying for. And they know that there's no reason for me as an advisor to recommend anything to them or point them in any direction um, that doesn't make sense for them, frankly, because I'm not incentivized to do it. I have, I'm not going to get paid any more for recommending a particular, say, maybe I'm recommending an insurance product to them, but I don't make any money off of that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I might you know, recommend that they do keep more money in this particular account versus that account, or they know also that, for instance, talking about real estate, uh, I can look at their whole portfolio and if they want to buy a piece of real estate and it's going to take money out of their investment, uh, say stock portfolio, uh, and it's, they're going to then put that into real estate. It doesn't change my compensation structure the way it would change the compensation structure of say an advisor who had a client who had, say the client had $2 million with that advisor, the advisor's charging, let's just say the average 1% a year. So they're, they're, charging that client $20,000 a year to manage that uh, $2 million. Um, say that client wants to buy a million dollar property uh, and they want to take that money out. The advisor will then, their <laughs> fee will then go down to, to yeah. you know, cut in half, literally. Yeah. Now, a lot of people are going to be, you know, perfectly honest. I'm not, I'm not saying these types of advisors are giving people the wrong advice. No, there are a lot of people charge that way and they tell their clients exactly the the you know what the client needs to hear they are acting as fiduciaries but there are those that don't and the client can't know beforehand yeah. you know how that advisor is going to work whereas if your business is structured again like mine like these other folks um, who are who are advice only or or and flat fee uh, advisors you know that that kind of monetary incentive is not going to drive the advisor's advice. Yeah, it's kind of like real estate. You know, you have commission base, you got a discount brokers, you have certain percentages, fixed percentages, and they all work differently, right? Mm -hmm. And there's always pros and cons to every side of things. So it's hard to say what's good and what's bad because even for a certain fixed cost, then I start thinking about, okay, how are they performing? You have, to, you have to look at their service level and their reputation because some people, some people, small percentage might say, hey, if I'm a fixed fee, I need to get mass quantity of people. So I'm just going to go in and out as quickly as I can to help as many people as I can without really putting thought process into it to really dig deep because 100, 100 hours versus one hour, same price. I'm just going to take the one hour, right? Some people might go that route. Why am I spending all this time with a person asking so many questions, right? Mm -hmm. So that gets yeah. difficult too. No, it, it, but then, you know, so so that's difficult, I would say. That's difficult on our side. What <laughs> The advisors that, that set up our, we set up our businesses like this, um, the way my friend used to put it is that there's, listen, there's plenty of money out there to be made. Uh, if I get a full practice, my practice becomes full to the maximum amount of folks that I feel that I can service uh, to the, you know, the best of my ability, um, I'm going to be making a fine living. That's yeah. not a problem. Um, is it true that I'm not, you know, if, if I can't, I'm not going to, um, like a great a client isn't going to come along that's going to come along with twenty million dollars and suddenly uh, double or triple or quadruple my uh, my my revenue you know going forward that's not going to happen with my business but that's okay um, because you know my goal is yes like everybody to make a living but my goal is to to do the right thing by my clients and and it, and it sounds you know it might sound a little uh, wishy you know wishy washy or or a little too uh, you know, I don't know, uh, as if I'm trying to be holier than thou, but that's just the way I feel. And, and I think, uh, or I would like to say, I know that my clients, um, you know, appreciate that. And you can do, you can really do a fixed fee. And even then for supply demand thing, you can increase your pricing over time too, as you provide more value, more knowledge and more expertise and providing proof of like, you know, really doing really well performance wise for all your clients, you can just start increasing your fee. So it's still fixed fee. It's just increasing over time and going with the market too. So it's not percentage based, but it is valued really well to your expertise level. Oh, so yeah. that's not bad too. No, no, that that's for sure the case. I mean, yeah. you know, products are, 
like you, you name any product, uh, people need to be comfortable. If they're comfortable paying the, you know, for the product, they feel they're getting the the the, the use out of it. Um, yeah, that's a, that's the way it works for sure. So back in the day, like, what made you jump out of Wall Street and go to, you know, a sushi restaurant business? Um, well, that's so that's a that we could have a whole episode on that. that <laughs> you know, but I'll, the quick story is that um, it was during the, you know, right. While the financial crisis was occurring, um, first, uh, my my first money manager went out of business because of our funding went away. Yeah. Uh, and then a partner and I raised some capital uh, to start a distressed fund. And we were going to invest in different types of, of securities that had been pummeled by by the uh, financial crisis that we felt there was going to be you know value there. And that was the, the where my previous expertise was. And... Um, so we worked on that for about a year and a half. And, um, you know, frankly, I was right on the cusp of Frank being one of the guys that, that could have been mentioned, um, in, in the book, the big short, uh, was we were uh, investing in, in distressed, uh, CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, all the subprime mortgages that had gone bad and all that back then. Um, but literally two weeks before our first uh, multi-hundred million dollar transaction was going to close, um, the government bailed out the banks uh, for the last time. Um, and we got a call the next day from our banking counterpart and said, well, we don't need your money anymore, you know, because, you know, frankly, taxpayer money is a lot cheaper than hedge fund money. Uh, yeah. And and so that literally that 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 action by the government closed our doors and, 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 and turned out the lights on that business. And I was just so frustrated with that situation that I wanted to do something that was not involved with finance at all. Um, and so that's what led me to, to the sushi business and, and why sushi? Um, uh, I had a friend who, from business school, whose whose mom actually owned a sushi restaurant. So I had the ability to have some expertise and, the other th great thing about sushi is that um, you have it's basically an assembly process uh, versus a cooking process, right? Only thing you really cook is the rice. Yeah. Um, and so as long as you got you can get the rice cooking good, um, which is challenging, frankly, when you're doing it on a, on a, on a large scale basis. But but we got there. Uh, then you can buy the right product, create a uh, operational uh, system that could then assemble the sushi the right way. Uh, and so that's what I did. I, I felt I had the expertise to create that, uh, the, 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 the procedures and the operations to, uh, to, to make sushi production, um, viable and delivery, frankly, cause that's what we did. And, and, and we delivered sushi, fresh sushi, um, for lunches, uh, to hospitals and, uh, schools, universities, uh, things like that, all corporate clients, and then even restaurants who who wanted sushi but didn't want to hire a sushi chef uh, onto their staff. So it was a fun business. That is a lot of fun because, yeah, it's pure, purely operational. So if you think about scalability, you can scale this massively, especially you guys went to corporate structure. That can be a lot of fun because you, you're building corporate accounts. That's way different and easier in a sense that if you can build the corporate accounts, you can create massive volumes and you know your scalability e really easily. Yeah, though that was that was frankly that's that's why I was able to sell the business because you know a lot of food businesses, restaurants, just you know when they stop, uh, when the business even whether voluntarily or involuntarily the the owner leaves, yeah. the restaurant closes. Um, but I built the business so that everything was documented. Um, I had a book of business. I had clients that regularly ordered every single week the same orders, um, you know, varied whatever. Uh, but so when uh, when I showed and presented that business to, to potential buyers, they could see exactly what they were buying and they could actually, you know, apply, uh, valuation techniques uh, to, to, to those cash flows, as opposed to just sort of hoping, well, gee, that's a nice idea. I want to hire, I, you know, I want to put my name on that shingle. <laughs> yeah, very true. You can actually even franchise the model too. Once you have it streamlined so well and perfected, you can streamline that same business practice to all across different, um, you know, different locations. Yeah, that, that was a dream. That was definitely <laughs> part of my dream at the time. But uh, but it was a lot more important, frankly, for me to uh, to be able to be home with my son than, than to worry about doing that. Yeah, it's nice because, yeah, in the restaurant business, you're there pr practically, practically all the time. But at, as a financial planner, you can actually be anywhere you want to be, right, and just have conversations with people. It, it really is. And, and, and frankly, that's 
the reason why I, again, the reason why I sold the business was my wife is a physician. So she would be on call. She would be overnight call. And like we started our production, our sushi production um, at 11 PM because if we had to do all the production at night so that when the sushi was as fresh as humanly possible when it was presented to the, to the clients. Um, and so, you know, after the third or fourth time that I got a call, from my general manager saying there was some problem and I had to go to the facility, you know, at two in the morning and my wife was at the hospital and yeah. I, my son was across the hall. Um, I, that was, it just wasn't happening. <laughs> yeah. That, that'd be too tough. You're not gonna wake up your son too and bring him. Let's go. <laughs> no, no, no although I have some pictures, but right before I sold the, the, the business, I have some pictures of, of him hanging on, on, on my chest and one of those uh, papoose things or whatever Yeah. And while I was doing deliveries. Cause of, you know, some of my delivery drivers would, would, would be out sick or for whatever reason. And so uh, I had to do deliveries. yeah. And so that was, that, that was definitely a funny time. And it's good too, because it actually helped you kind of like restart, refresh, and then get settled in and say, Hey, I actually love financial planning. I actually want to help a lot of people out there. They need this benefit. I can help them better and, you know, build that trust relationship with them. And your friends are asking you for help anyway. So then it just feels, it fits right in perfectly with that. Yeah. It, it fit a lot better than, and it led a lot. It was a lot straighter of a line than you may uh, otherwise imagine, because what I learned, I'd never worked in the food service industry before. Um, but when I, when I opened the business, I hired a general manager who had been 35 years in food. And then, uh, I hired a couple sushi chefs who knew what they were doing for local uh, restaurants. And then everybody who came to work for the company, if they're, what I learned was if, if you work in food and then working, you know, working with the cafeteria managers that, that worked for the schools and the hospitals and the companies, et cetera, that I, we delivered to, if you work in food, you really love more than anything else the look on somebody's face when they eat what you've just made for them and they like it. And, you know, food is a comfort item, right? We, we talk about that. Everybody wants meatloaf or, uh, or, or, frankly, a nice bowl of ramen when you're cold and stuff like that. So whatever food it is that, that you're, you're making for somebody, it's really you want to make them feel better. And frankly, that's what I want to do with my uh, planning clients. I want them to feel better about their futures because at least there's a plan in place. None of us can pre predict the future. I can't tell them that they're going to have X dollars uh, it, 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 you know, to retire. Their properties that they own are going to go up in value like they have over the last you know, little while. But, but I can put a plan, help them put a plan in place that says, if this happens, we have a contingency. If that happens, we have a contingency. And if everything goes as it should, then, hey, you know, we, we're, we're going we're gonna to be okay. When do you start helping people? Like, uh, I guess the first question is this. When do people actually start getting financial planners? And what's the percentage of people you think actually have a financial planner? Um, I've seen numbers. I mean, the, the, the people who actually have financial planners or, or, or advisors is quite low overall. Yeah. Um, I think in the teens, maybe. Um, I think everybody, the way to put it that I like to put it is that everybody can benefit from having a financial advisor or a financial planner, um, but nowhere near everybody needs one um, because there's so many things you can do early on by yourself, little education. Um, listen to podcasts, frankly, uh, that people are putting out, such as yourself, that 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 give people just the little nuggets. You don't need a complex situation, um, or to, or I should say, you don't need to create a complex situation early on in your savings and investment career um, for no reason. And and a lot of advisors, especially the ones that are trying to sell you stuff, they're going to try to overcomplicate things to make you think that they're doing something for you. Um, I heard uh, Ramit Sethi, um, you may have uh, heard of him, but I think he said recently that that people don't really need an advisor uh, or a planner until they have maybe a million dollars um, of investable assets. And that may not be all stocks. You could have be in properties or whatever. And, and I mean, that's a rule of thumb, but it's not probably not that far off. Um, you can save a good amount of your money by yourself just open up some accounts, uh, easy, easy rules of thumb, you know, fund your retirement accounts, your tax advantaged retirement 
mint accounts first. Um, only then go start in taxable accounts. Um, and then, like I said, my recommendation, you know, this is, I'm not giving out investment advice on your show, but but the easiest and best thing to do for, for a lot of people or most people, frankly, is just to buy um, cheap index funds to capture the whole market. Don't try to uh, make a hodgepodge of mutual funds in a, or, or, you know, individual stocks in a portfolio. Um, that's going to take too much time. Chances of your, of you picking the right stocks is probably pretty slim. Um, and, uh, and it just overcomplicates things. Yeah. I think that's the part, like in the, in the beginning, even when you first started, like I, I started investing when I was 24 in real estate actually, but even then, like there's like a lot of self-education you really have to go get it. And then in the beginning too, like, how do you know who to trust financial advisors, uh, what people say, what investors are saying, what everyone's saying, what CPAs and other people are saying, and then trying to figure it out yourself is tough because there's not like one resource or there's like so many different variables and there's so many different ways. It's hard to choose which is the best path to do, which makes the most sense uh, beneficial for the client rather than the advisors you know mm -hmm. so it gets a little challenging there and like for, yeah for example some people say traditional wise they might say hey you put your money in a bank but you know bank inflation you're not making money some people say put it into like s&p 500 just that one alone it probably outperform in general over time than you picking yourself um others say yeah put it to whole life insurance policies put it to real estate um different markets but then it gets complex as you keep going some people say buy your own stocks, buy some Bitcoin. It gets tough to like really know. And you're like, well, I only have this much money. How can I really put it anywhere? And then I'm not an expert at it. You know, then who do I talk to about that? And are they even experts at that one or they're generalists? And, and how are they performing too? Are they outperforming the market? Most likely not the case all the time, right? right. So how right, do you find right. so, a financial so advisor? Yeah. And how does that work? Um, well, there you can, you can, I mean, we've all got our Google boxes that we can just, you know, crack open and, uh, and, and, you know, you look for my recommendations to, you know, you can look for, um, there's, there, there are, uh, networks out there that you can search through, um, the fee only network, uh, uh, there's a there's 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 a network called NAPFA. It's an association of of of, of fee only uh, financial planners. Um, and then, frankly, you know, just go go so far as to Google uh, flat fee or fee only uh, financial planner or advisor. And then the great thing is that now people are putting information out there. Um, you know, I mean, I'm on podcasts, I blog. People can go to my website uh, verbatim, verbatimfinancial.com, and they can see and get a sense for what I'm uh, about. And you can do that about other advisors. And, you know, I mean, I, I work with clients across the country. Um, I know some people are really uh, very comfortable with virtual. Uh, I know some people who aren't. So like, for instance, I have uh, clients outside of, outside of San Francisco. Um, they're great. Obviously they're virtual because of uh, certainly over the last year uh, we haven't been flying around. Um, but I've also recommended advisors uh, to folks who I know that operate in the right way, um, but to folks that want to walk or drive to that advisor's office and sit down next to the person. So, you know, um, like I said, there's there's the number of folks that I really think are doing it genuinely uh, in their client's best interests that you know that they're doing it in the client's best interests. Uh, it's 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 a smaller number, frankly, than the than the whole advisory uh, business, um, and so we 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 like to we we often refer around. Uh, it's 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 not easy, but it's definitely possible. How do you guys go about like you know helping a client? Say, let's say this: I'm meeting you today online. I want to talk about financing. Like, how do you start figuring out what's best for them, or some creating some options for them? Sure. Um, well, it's all about listening frankly, to, to you, the client, um, I need to find out what you're, what you want. Um, you know, where do you want to go? Uh, what do you want to do? What is your current situation? Uh, everybody's got different short, medium and long-term, um, goals and desires. And so, uh, I don't have a, um, a rote or, a, a you know, a specific, list of things that I do for every single client in a certain specific order. Now, do all these things usually have to be done eventually? Yes. Uh, you want to address things like estate planning. You want to address uh, things like, uh, you know, tax 
uh, implications and being, you know, optimizing your tax situation. And, but, but that takes time. It takes time to, to get to know clients and it takes time to uh, learn uh, what, how things would benefit them the best. Right. Uh, but I think to cut to it, to cut to the chase, the, 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 the real answer is going to be, what do I do? What's the first thing that I do for folks? Usually if they've got a portfolio of investments, we'll look at that portfolio and we'll see, okay, how can we optimize it again, tax wise and fee wise? Because a lot of times the first couple of years that I'll work with um, clients is a, is sort of housekeeping. Like I will be cleaning up um, old portfolios that they may have had uh, sometimes, frankly, from other uh, advisors that they worked with in the past. And they're in high fee mutual funds. Uh, they may be in stocks that, they, that, 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 they're, that they're nervous about because the stocks have gone up, but, it, but you can't just willy nilly sell them because there may be tax implications and stuff like that. So the first thing that I end up doing with most clients is, is the housekeeping. And then we move on to getting to know each other. And then for me, that's where the meat of the of the planning process really takes place. Yeah. And I think about this all the time. Like, you know, when you think about it, there's so many different um, variables and certain things. Like, for example, you have asset management, you have family offices, you have CPAs, you have financial advisors, planners, you have um, other kinds of like hedge fund guys too. And then you have like lawyers too, for example, and you're trying to create a team and the team has to communicate and work well together. Even insurance agents too, like do the, those insurance agents just sell higher policies when really the policy shouldn't be that high. You should actually diversify some of this, like for the lawyers say into LLCs agreements in different locations, protecting it. And then overall the whole thing gets better, but that's challenging too, because there's like, if you go to one company, each person has their own specialty. They sell their own products. They don't, not everyone works together as a team saying, Hey, actually, I don't need all this money here. You should put some money over here and then balance it back out. So we're all good together. Mm -hmm. That's a yeah. challenge. No, it, it's definitely a challenge. And, and, and for instance, you know, I, I am a sole solo pr practitioner. Um, uh, my firm is right now just me. Um, and I, and a lot of, uh, a lot of RIAs are like that. Um, we have to be registered to be an RIA. Um, but, uh, but, I'm the only investment advisor representative of my RIA, uh, but I have relationships, um, you know, deep relationships many times with folks um, that are aligned, their values are aligned with my values. And so if a client has chosen to work with me and I've chosen to work with that client, um, then we are also aligned. Uh, and they know that the people that you know, I bring in, you know, to work together with us, um, that we're all going to be essentially on the same page. Um, I know that some people find comfort in, say, working with an advisor who is at a, a large bank, say. Uh, um, and and I get that. I totally get that. I worked in those large banks for, for years. Um, but uh, but it's often just like you said, that the, just because the bank has all these different departments doesn't mean that the people in the different departments have ever even spoken to each other yeah. live before. So, you know, I get it. If people are happy with that, that's great. And, and if that works for them, more power to them. Um, but, but that's, you know, again, not the way I chosen to uh, structure my business. Yeah, I, I agree. It's just, for example, it's like in real estate, going for a big name box office or else going for independent and they it's really comes back down to the advisor. The advisor is the one who's really going to be helping you. So find the right advisor, you know, not just the name on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, you know, I mean, I don't, um, I, it's not as if I hold people's money. It doesn't come mm -hmm. to me. Uh, I, I custodian through, uh, TD Ameritrade and I don't even have to custodian through them. Um, because if people have had a longstanding relationship with say they've had accounts at fidelity for, for, for 10 years, there's no reason they don't have to transfer it uh, to TD just because I work with them, but I can be their advisor. And because I'm not charging them on an AUM basis, um, they just pay me my fee. It's, it's, it's kind of an easy process. Yeah. How do you, how do people choose the right financial advisor? How do they know when there's a good fit for them? Um, well, part of it, it really does come down to a comfort uh, level. I mean, this is a trust business uh, and that's, 
why it's also a very sticky business. Once people get financial advisors, um, they seldom leave their financial advisor, uh, even if that advisor may not be, frankly, always acting in their best interest, um, because it's it's a relationship uh, business. And so, you know, what what I always tell people is, and you'll see this if you read the articles on it, you know, interview a number of advisors um, see who you click with because this is a relationship business. You're going to have to, if they're doing right by you, you you're going to talk to your advisor a bunch of times every year. And when you encounter certain issues, I mean, you know, happy issues, like, like, like your company going public, that's great. Um, sad issues like death or divorce. I mean, you're going to be in situations where you're going to have weeks or months sometimes where you're talking to your advisor on an almost daily basis sometimes. So you better get along with them. You better not, <laughs> you know, not, not, not want to hear uh, their phone ring or see their email come across your screen. Um, and so that's part of it. But, you know, you've got to come up with these reasons to, you know, even to pick those three to five people to, to interview and to talk to. And, you know, what I always come back to, frankly, is that if you want your advisor to be a fiduciary for you, that means for them always to act in your best interest, why not make it easy on yourself and choose from a pool of advisors whose business is structured so that they've eliminated as many of the conflicts of interest as possible uh, before you even start, um, sort of, again, like I said, yeah. fee, fee only, flat fee, uh, hourly, whatever, something like that. Again, versus you could interview five advisors who work uh, under the AUM model, um, and, and a couple of them might be awesome, but you know, it, you don't have that initial cut, which, uh, which I think might as well make it as easy as possible on yourself to, to pick the right person. That's true too. And one thing that comes to mind too is that when you do a fixed fee, you're actually getting one variable. Getting rid of one variable that I like is that okay. Well, some people have like a minimum, like hey, fifty thousand minimum, five hundred thousand minimum, ten million dollar minimums, and then you can kind of tell. Well, if you're under that price point, they're not going to spend as much time with you as they can spend with someone else. Being on a percentage base, they just don't have the time. Even if they want to help you, they just don't have the time to allocate to you. And if you were to help someone who had ten million dollars versus someone who had a hundred thousand dollars, you know they need to focus on the ten million just to be honest right yeah it's 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 just you're just looking at yet another potential conflict of interest um uh, and you don't know exactly yep. what that advisor is doing what's driving mm -hmm. um what they do for you um, yeah so that's you know like i said as many as those as you can eliminate the better off you're going to be um yeah. just even just starting right from there so basically simplifying your clients in, uh, investments and also simplifying the process to find a financial advisor simplifying the complexity of choosing them so that way you, you know they're working in your best interest and in trying to help align with you and understand your what you're trying to do and by doing that together on both sides of things it makes it a lot easier to start working with a financial advisor faster because you're not having to think about all these different variables that are out there like are you for me are you for yourself are you for him you know and then all these things so that's good that you guys do that with a fixed fee um by the way in, in general practice what's the fee amounts that people charge for fixed fees and up um well so people will charge if they're charging hourly you could see $250 an hour plus, mm -hmm. uh, depending upon, again, sort of like you mentioned before, depending upon the level of expertise that that particular uh, planner or advisor has uh, and experience. So, uh, and then, you know, my fee is currently $5,000 a year um, for uh, an ongoing relationship, financial planning and investment management. Um, and I've seen people that certainly have, have charged less than that. I've seen people that go with a monthly rate. They'll, they'll charge, say, $300 a month instead of uh, an, an annual rate like I do. Uh, and then, uh, frankly, there are flat fee advisors who I know personally who charge as high as twenty dollars or $25,000, um, you know, uh, annually. Uh, and that's because, you know, they are almost like, as you mentioned, family office advisors. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that they don't charge on a percentage basis. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely. And it comes to my next question too. Like, for example, if you're working with asset manager, 
uh, who's managing just your all overall assets, like an office, right? Do you, they, you know, they have, they might have their own in-house financial advisors within the team, or, you know, sometimes people might say, I need one financial advisor, I need an asset manager. Uh, not exactly, not exactly the same, but you know, they're two, then you're paying all these different people for, to support your, you know, support your funds. But hopefully by then you have a lot of funds anyways that you need that support. Um, Sure. Okay. So you touched on a couple things. The first is that if if you've got a massive team working mm -hmm. for you, um, you're probably you somehow you're paying for that team. Um, <laughs> so so think of it like that. There's a you know if if you have a four, four or five million dollars or or even you know many times that, um, and you're paying a percentage of that amount every year, those numbers get really big, uh, really fast, and and so. Yeah, it's going to support all these folks, but the question then becomes, you know, what what are they all doing for you? Do you need a team of five sal? Or do you need to be basically paying five different people, uh, you know, to take care of you? I don't know. Maybe yeah. you do, and if you do, again, more power to you. But what I know is that the vast majority of people, including people with double-digit million dollars of 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 assets and net worth, um, they usually don't need that and to the extent that they think they do they've been convinced that they do by the people who are selling these products and services um that you know basically just provides to send their kids to college never mind their <laughs> clients right um, yeah it can be yeah and, you know, and so and and you said so the second thing that you that you hit on was um another question that you that you you said earlier is you know how do people know how to choose an advisor well the first thing somebody should do is also ask themselves what they want, right? Do they want an asset manager or an investment manager um, or do they want a financial advisor? And those two things are different because, you know, an investment manager, an asset manager is going to look, they're going to concentrate mainly on the, on that portfolio of investments. And then again, often try to, uh, you know, manipulate it. Uh, so that it does potentially outperform the market. And if that's what you want, there are people out there that try to do that and they may succeed some years, they may fail some years, but if that's what you want, go find a person that's going to do that. Um, but if you want an advisor who's going to take you, um, hopefully from where you are right now in your life to where you want to go, wherever that is, whether it's retirement, whether it's a new career, um, if you want an advisor, then look for a person who focuses on advice more than asset management or investment management. Do uh, financial advisors give free consultations too in the, in the beginning just to understand each other? Um, oh, sure. Uh, you know, no, so I know I do know some people who charge for initial uh, initial meetings. Just basically, they try to do that to keep people from <clears throat> you know kicking too many uh, tires. Yeah, but but. but but those fees are, are usually, if they do charge them, they're very small, um, you know, 50 bucks or, or, okay. or 150 bucks. Um, yeah. And they're always refundable if, if, the, if you go with the person. But like, I don't charge for an initial uh, call. And so, you know, I have no problem. And in fact, I enjoy, you know, spending uh, 30 minutes uh, or, or to an hour on the phone with somebody to find out whether we would be a fit. Um, and again, like a lot of times, you know, I don't want to say I turn away business, mm -hmm. but a lot of times that's exactly what will happen. I'll have a conversation with somebody and I'll say, okay, well, you know, I'll ask them those questions. I'll listen to the, to, to what they have to say. And the right answer for them, the fiduciary, let's put it that way. The fiduciary answer for them is to, for me to tell them, you don't need an advisor right now. You just need to do these three things and call me in five years. Um, because of just concentrate on your work, concentrate on advancing your career, <clears throat> on making your next real big real estate purchase, uh, that type of thing, you know, um, and just keep your investments and, and your other things as simple as possible. Um, you know, when you when when that grows, when your family situation changes, you know, then an advisor might be something you want to look at. And do you guys do any sorts of real estate investments, syndications, funds, um, other kinds of projects? Um, well, I don't Reese. do it, mm -hmm. but, but well, so, so, but real estate, um, is, um, 
part, a legitimate part of of your of an overall port investment portfolio. So that real estate can be <clears throat> can be in the form of REITs, a securitized product. Uh, that real estate investment could be in the form of syndication, um, which are you know more and more popular right now. Um, and frankly, you know that the, it could also be in the form of hard assets. And so none of those things are 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 bad in and of themselves or good. It just depends on what that particular person, you know, wants to do. And so again, my job is to, you know, lead them through the maze and point them to the right folks that they might work with, um, <clears throat> you know, and not allow them to either get taken advantage of or, or, or pay too much money out, uh, you know, versus the return that they might get. And I guess in your portfolio or your clientele portfolio in general, or even as financial advisors, I I see like, I think a lot, a lot of people have a good percentage based on real estate assets, you know, even big, com big financial companies that have a, like, for example, like 70% is based on real estate, something's based on bonds, a percentage based on other assets and, you know, stocks. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be something that, um, is going to vary, uh, client to client, and it's going to vary based upon their risk, uh, profile, what, what their risk tolerance is, uh, and you know their the, their time the time or point that they're at in life um, are they nearing retirement are they are they re actually retired or do they have you know twenty more years before they need uh, to potentially access those 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 funds so <clears throat> you know the mix between bonds and 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 stocks and real estate and and other potential investments. You know, uh, I, I work with folks who have who are business owners, and so those businesses are also part of their investment portfolio. Uh, and you've the 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 job of an advisor is to look at that thing holistically, and 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 to be able to say, okay, well, look, you've got a ton of real estate exposure here, um, so the last thing you need to do is buy REITs in your, uh, you know, in your in your in your um, your managed portfolio, uh, because of you've got plenty of real estate uh, exposure, and so it <clears throat> it all depends on the on the on the person, frankly. Um, so even when I say that, you know, you should, I recommend or I or I I am a proponent, <clears throat> excuse me, of low cost index funds, uh, total market funds, things like that. That doesn't mean by any stretch that every one of my clients is going to have the same portfolio. Yeah. Do you guys, um, even for yourself, do you recommend your clients do, uh, a, like what kind of percentage do you recommend clients do the real estate investing wise, even if every client is different, like, you know, are you guys helping with that, facilitating that and, um, saying, Hey, you know, for example, for all the benefits out there, the risk out there, um, you should put X percentage or X dollars into some real estate, some form of real estate. Um, I, you know, I always shy away from percentages like that um, because <clears throat> those percentages can change based upon the market. They can change based upon comfort levels because that's, again, that's another thing that, you know, you, you get to know your clients and you find out what they're really comfortable with because the goal is, one of my goals is to have a client that can go to sleep at night and feel comfortable and then I tell them uh, or show them what the risks that that they're potentially exposing themselves to. Um, but, uh, you know, having clients that really, quote unquote, like real estate and have, say, maybe 50 percent of their net worth in real estate, uh, be it commercial or residential, um, you know, that that's that seems like a massive number. But their family may have been in real estate for the last hundred years. Um, yeah. And that's something that they're happy with. Um, and so the idea of my job is to then offset the risk because it, because, because, you know, risk concentrations, hopefully you can offset those in, in, in certain ways. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily recommend a high risk, equity portfolio <laughs> if you have a, a huge concentration risk in say real estate or something like that uh, you know just throwing out things like that so everybody really is different okay um and for example just looking at this here too just thinking about all the different ways about um financial advising real estate investing 
what do you think the current market is uh, heading towards right now? And right now we're in the middle of 2021 pandemics, um, you know, we're 18 months in around. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, and, and no, that's the, yeah. the, and that's the honest truth. I, I, I don't like to make uh, predictions. Um, they seldom work out for folks. Uh, what I will say is that I ask questions when people come to me and they'll say, okay, well, the market stock market's really high. Um, I'm afraid to, you know, invest or should I sell? And then my, it's my job to ask them questions is, okay, um, what makes you think it is going to go down soon? Um, what are the other, uh, alternatives? What, you know, where would you put your money otherwise? Um, this is what's happened in the past. Um, I can't say that it's going to happen in the future, but, you know, we can look at these things and, and try to make decisions like that uh, together, as opposed uh, to me telling somebody that this is going to happen or, or look out, you know, this might, the market might fall um, because um, if you've put together a plan that is supposed to work uh, in various uh, circumstances for you, then ideally it works independent of of how the market is going is is going. Because again, if you if you have 20, 30 years uh, of potential earning power in front of you, then the fact that the market is high right now and may go down sometime in the next year or who knows, let's we just don't know. Um, that's not really that impactful for you. Um, if you are two years from the date that you've picked to retire, um, then we, if I've been working with a person, then we would have already had the process in place and we would be moving towards a lower risk profile for you. And so the fact that you know the market is where it is doesn't impact what we're doing. What impacts what, what I do with folks is their lives not, not, not what's happening outside their lives. Yeah. And you know, for me, like I like real estate a lot. So I look at just all the different factors and even though I'm not, I'm just analyzing, not predicting, um, just and looking at his, historic trends, which are different. I like the fact that, okay, now with the pandemic, you had a huge acceleration in business and um, just the way operations are running, everything becoming more virtual, uh, becoming more global, and people actually have to accept it because the life, everyone life changed immediately. You know, there's no, it was a slow, long process, and they say that they just drew out so fast. That's why you see like companies like Amazon and other tech companies are scaling quickly because they already had that model adopted. Right. While the other companies, you see the old companies, they're struggling, they can't keep up, and they're closing because they didn't even you know think about this in the future or how to how to pivot quickly to to accept this would happen right so mm -hmm. the acceleration of it changes so then you start thinking about okay what else is changing people's lives how will life be different moving forward how do things work at a global level rather than a local level and then you start seeing you know all the analytics micro macro behind it and you're like hmm maybe assumption this could happen but we'll see and how does that affect real estate and affect your financing right and like how do you take you know your risk level of low medium or high risk to correlate it with it and invest and hopefully make smart decisions with smart people so that's fun it is no and that's super fun so 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 it's all theory wrong. yeah i i mean i absolutely love to talk about this stuff and i will have conversations with clients about it i love talking about i'm i'm, I'm a big fan of demographics which is why i'm not you know, you could tell me whether you, what you think about this. I'm not worried about the real the, the real estate market, at least the residential real estate market, because of we've got a massive slug of um, millennials who are entering mm -hmm. over the next even decade, the point in their lives where they're going to be buying homes. And yep. and so that's good. That all that should do is support this market. Now, do I mean, I don't think we'll see the continued home price appreciation that we've seen for the last year that was a little crazy and pandemic induced <laughs> but at the same time i don't i don't see anything that indicates a crash coming yeah um that type of thing so i love to talk about that i mean that's you know i mean i spent years just pulling in data from from everywhere when i was when i was when i was on the banking side and building big models and and doing all that kind of stuff so i i love it um but 
it's not going to, that kind of thing isn't necessarily going to affect whether, you know, my clients own uh, X security versus another one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And it, it's just fun to talk about it because I see some, I know some institutional investor friends who mm -hmm. do this at a high level and they spend a lot of money per month doing it. And they analyze, they have like data scientists actually analyzing the models, analyzing global economies and every single point factor of it. And they're showing you all these reporting systems saying, here's what's going to happen. Here's why it's going to happen. Here's the data to prove it's going to happen. It's not 100% guaranteed, but we really spend millions of dollars to make sure that we invest really well for our multi-million dollar clientele. I'm like, mm -hmm. that's actually really smart. They took all data across the world and put it into systems and analyzed it and tried to predict it. But that's at a high level. Normal people, we're not going to care too much. It's not going to really affect us, but at a big institutional level, it changes. Yeah, uh, but yeah. I'm going to tell you is that um, there were some big institutional models who yep. had who were running, uh, you know, using essentially supercomputers um, to predict that um, there would not have been uh, a crash in 2008. Um, if you, you know, if you go back and look at the real the, the research that all of the street firms, you know, were putting out at the time. Um, you know, models are only as good as the data you put into it, and up yep. until that point in time, there had never been a national decrease in home price appreciation ever in the history of the United States. So none of the models captured that. And yep. what, but, but, okay. but that's exactly what happened. <laughs> that's very true. So yeah, it's only as good as the models. And, and there's a lot of things people, people don't know. Like who knew a pandemic would come uh, when it would come to, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what happens to the economy and, you know, amount of everything that all the chaos that it caused. Mm -hmm. And then, and then pe people, people act in certain ways. Humans act like humans. Mm -hmm. Um, the U.S. market is massive. Uh, the dollar is still the reserve currency. Um, and although you have people who don't like the Federal Reserve and there's all these anti-Fed people who are who are gold bugs or now Bitcoin bugs um, who are anti-Fed, um, you know, until there is a viable alternative uh, and, and it doesn't look like it's going to be the Chinese yuan, uh, you know, or, or anything else right now, uh, then, 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 you know, that's just, then what, what does that, all that turn into? It just turns into stuff that's fun to talk about, but <laughs> yeah, I don't see you, right. And so the models, you know, they're just, they're fun. They're, they're fun to make, they're fun to talk about, but, but it's probably not going to affect your yep. savings and investment. <laughs> Very true, because yeah, it's all fun and it's all theory, and there's no hundred percent correct model. If there was, everyone would be rich, you know. Period, right? It's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the case. So nothing's perfect. So before we wrap up the show, like, what are some advice, some mistakes, some pitfalls you see clients, and how how do people get going and get moving and start building real financial wealth? Sure, sure. Okay, so I'll give you you know a couple of things. I, I touched on this earlier. If you're young and you're starting out, if you're like a Gen Z, I mean. Your superpower is time. Just start saving. And it doesn't have to be a massive amount. But I do say save as much as you possibly can. Uh, and then keep your your personal expenses low as your job, uh, you get raises at work, your career gets better. Um, just, in, just keep increasing your savings and make it keep that savings and investment as simple as possible. Um, and, and you will be shocked. Uh, I've heard some people say, you know, Open up a Vanguard account, buy uh, the total market fund, VTI, uh, every month, and lose the password <laughs> to the account. Because if you don't want to look at it every day. Um, so that's for young folks. That's that's my, my the best the best advice that I, that 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 I could give. I know I I lost a ton of money because in my twenties I thought I was a smart guy and I thought I could uh, pick stocks and and so I did invest and I made a little money. But I went back and I looked. And I would have had several times more money had I just simply put it into a S&P or total market fund. So yeah, I agree with you on that one <laughs> yeah, so that, from experience. That, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, and then for, for people that are a little bit older, um, one of the things that, that I'll tell them to do, they can do their own financial housekeeping. I do this with people. This, like I said, this is a big part of what I do. Uh, for folks, but but they can do it themselves. If you've got an old 401k or sometimes more than one old 401k from different jobs, go back and look at them. Open up the 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 open up the statements that come um, because you may have picked the best mutual funds available to you at the time, 
1999 uh, to, to, you know, to, to go into that uh, 401k, but it's 2021 now. Um, chances are those funds are probably not the most efficient funds anymore. They may not be the right funds for you at the point of uh, where you are in your life. And so look at these things and make conscious decisions even with those old uh, old accounts, and, and and then you might find you know over the course of time that that you know benefit can benefit you greatly. Cool, that's a great advice for people. So be sure to you know talk to John about it. Talk, look at his website, Verbenum Financial, and contact John about any questions regarding you know financial advising and how he can help you and, and your people, family uh, invest and really think about how to clean up your portfolios, how to maximize it, and based on your age, based on your um, financial you know goals, and how to best work with you on that. So where do they reach out? How can they contact you? Um, the best way is uh, to go to my website, verbatimfinancial.com. Um, it's really, it's, it's, it's got a, I've got a little button there that says reach out. Again, they can look at my blog. Um, and then I'm also on social media, probably more than I should be. I know my <laughs> wife says I'm on it more than I should be. Uh, but my handle on, on basically every social media site is the same. It's, it's, it's S-T-O-J-B-O-J, um, which is it's actually pronounced Stoy Boy because my, 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 my Stoy, uh, the J is a lot. And it throws a lot of people. Cool. I think we lost you a bit. Oh, oh. there you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know where I, where 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 you lost me, but uh, oh, right but, after your uh, right after contacting you. So you know, be sure to check you out, uh, shoot your email, check out your website, hit the reach me button, and then you know, for everyone out there, thank you so much for being on our show, the Truth About Real Estate Podcast, and we will see you guys in the next one. Have a great day.